Our text this evening is Psalm uh, 24, and I'd encourage you to follow along in your, in your Bible as I read Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Uh, I mentioned this morning, and I'll mention again, that there's sort of a trilogy of psalms right here. This is the last of the three. Psalms 22, 23, and 24. Um, I'll let, I'm going to read Graham Scroggy, a, a Bible teacher who's um, given us great help in many ways. I'll, I'll just read his comments. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 bear an exceedingly interesting relation to one another. In 22, Christ is the Savior. In 23... He is the shepherd. And in 24, he is the sovereign. Psalm 22 tells us of grace, 23 of guidance, and 24 of glory. In 22, we see the cross. In 23, the crook, the shepherd's crook, you know, the cane-like look. And in 24, the crown. Psalm 22 is related to the past. Psalm 23 to the present and Psalm 24 to the future. So that might help you just think through those three uh, psalms and how they relate, and I think that's uh, appropriate. Well, let's begin then by noticing uh, in this psalm, he, David begins, first of all, it's called the Psalm of David, but he begins by speaking of God as creator. So it says it's a Psalm of David, which means David is the author. <clears throat> Sometimes we're given some information about the context. What led to your writing this, David? He doesn't tell us a thing. It's just a, a psalm of David. Some have assumed with this uh, entering into the, you know, the king of glory and this sort of thing, some have assumed that relates to the Ark of the Covenant and that maybe this was a time, the time when David brought the Ark of the Covenant uh, into Jerusalem. Remember, there was the, uh, he wanted to build the temple. He was declined. But he, so then he decided, well, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant itself into Jerusalem. Remember, they put it on a, on a cart and tried to carry it into town, and um, someone reached out, grabbed it. Was it Uzzah? And he reached out, grabbed the ark that was getting ready to stumble off the ark cart. He was struck dead. David kind of went into a pity party, but we won't get into that. And, and said, uh, "What are you doing here? Leave the ark there." Eventually, he brought it back to Jerusalem with great festivity. Some say this psalm relates to that. I'm going to say I don't think so. You know, it's not. That's not at all certain. And it seems to be a more directly messianic psalm. Um, so with that having been said, let's look at it more thoroughly. In verse 1, 
David uses the similar language when he says, a psalm of David, uh, I can't quite express in the Hebrew, but um, think of it, the first few words of of verse 1. It says, "To, um, to David, a psalm, to the Lord, the earth. So that's kind of a very literalistic reading of the first few words there. Um, and so what he's saying is this psalm is from David and is his psalm as much as the earth is from God and it's his earth. So he begins after saying, you know, this, the psalm is David's psalm to emphasizing the fact that God is the source and owner of the earth and everything on it and in it. It says, he says, and all its fullness, the earth, the earth is the Lord's and all its, everything that fills it up, you could say. And then he goes on and says, and the world, and this is one of those typical Hebrew parallelisms, the world and those who dwell therein. So the earth in all its fullness, the, the dirt, the water, the trees, all of it, and those who dwell in it, all the people on it. Are, you know, so it's not just the plants, not just the, the, the animals. All of humanity belongs to the Lord. And so as he begins this psalm, what a description of the king of glory. He made everything and everything belongs to him. This is my father's world. And so one thing that, that helps us understand, that's a concept that's really vital. When we realize God made it all, that gives him the right of ownership and the right of rulership. He made it. It's his. And so the psalm begins with that kind of an idea. And then verse 2. He has founded it, this, this earth, upon the seas and established it upon the waters. When he talks about the earth being founded on the seas, have you ever heard of uh, the struggle when people want to build and then they realize it's kind of a floodplain? Uh, there's water there. You can't build there. And, and so, but in a sense, the world is a floodplain. Uh, even in the ancient world, they knew that there were streams and, and uh, pools and seas, if you will, underwater. If you dig, the water is there. God founded this world on top of these waterways. And it's solid and it's, and, and it's grounded and it's resourced with water. He has he founded it upon the seas. He's established it upon the waters. And so in the first couple of verses, he quickly emphasizes God's greatness. You know, the, one of the things that's a marvel, if you do any kind of study about anything of creation, you might be into plants, you might be into animals, you might be into the weather. God's design is beyond comprehension. It's just amazing, his, his brilliance and his wisdom and his sense of beauty, but also his power. You know, you can get a, 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 maybe a design or an architect that, can come up with a great and beautiful building, or maybe an engineer and says, I've got this great car I'd like to build, but we can't build it. It's not possible. So there's, but God can, can create it in his mind out of nothing and then create it out of nothing into existence. And so we see his wisdom. We see his power. And with that, his sovereignty. This is his. He has a right to do what he will with it. So giving us a sense of God's um, amazing majesty. And again, sometimes maybe you've been struck by that. Maybe you've gone hiking and you're up on a hill and you look out over a beautiful area. Stunning. Maybe you've just been able to lie on your back and look up into an, 
uh, up into the sky and see all the stars and just think, how amazing, especially when you start thinking that those are, you know, how far each of those stars are. How amazing is God? How powerful is God? Well, having laid that foundation, we've seen, first of all, God in his, in, in his, in his power and, and his, the, he is the world's sovereign creator. Now, David wants to go into the worthy worshiper. Who could, who could approach such a God? How can, it, how can we go into his presence? And that's verses 3 through 6. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Selah. So he talks about who can ascend to the hill of the Lord or stand in his holy place. So here's the picture of, you know, okay, maybe that's where uh, he's talking here. They hadn't built the te- temple, and actually the ark was brought into Jerusalem, but the tabernacle was somewhere else. So who could go in and worship in, before the tabernacle? Who can go and worship, I mean, before the ark? Who can go and worship in the tabernacle or when the temple is built? Who can, who can enter into the place of God's presence? At that time, if you had any kind of ritual impurity, you couldn't go into the temple precincts. You couldn't go and worship. And so if you, you know, for example, if you had leprosy, you couldn't go, go in. If you had a, 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 an oozing sore, you couldn't go in. If you had all sorts of issues, if you'd been in contact with a dead body or whatever it might be, there were all these different things. If you had that exposure, you couldn't go into God's holy presence. You were ritually unclean. You were contaminated. Now, a lot of that could be dealt with by, um, they had what's called the mikvahs. Uh, this was a place of like baptismal tanks all around the, um, the entrances to the Temple Mount in, in Jesus' day were, were these various places where you could go, be immersed, and ritually cleanse yourself from your contamination. When I think of that, I often think about reading a, about a scribe who came to Dallas a few years back, and he had been commissioned to um, copy a new Torah scroll for a synagogue. Uh, the scrolls in the synagogue are all handwritten on animal skin scrolls. And, um, and it, it was like a year-long project. So this person would come in, and he would write. He had to write out all of it. I remember one time when I was in Jerusalem, I, uh, I, I like to hang around sometimes the, the ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods of the Hasidim or there's other labels for them. One time there was a big crowd around a, a, a house, and I'd learned in my time there in particular, whenever I saw a crowd go to it and find out what's going on. Um, so I got a lot of free tours that way. I'd go to maybe Capernaum or something, and I'd see a tourist crowd. So I'd go and I'd listen. So I saw a crowd. I kind of pushed my way in a little bit. Kind of true confession. But, and, and I looked in, and there was a Torah scroll. And they were writing. It, they, it was just being finished. The scribe was right there, and, and, and a great honor was being given. Different ones in the room were allowed to, to write, like, one portion of a letter. And so to them, you know, that was going to be a lasting uh, blessing and remembrance that the Torah scroll, they helped to write it. And so, so I got, you know, so I was kind of watching, and it was, a, you know, the scribe had it all, I think he actually had it outlined, and they had to kind of just fill it in. But you don't want to mess that up. 
Um, but anyway, so th- that kind of gave you the sense. When I read about the one coming from, to Dallas, what part of his pr- process was every day he would go to a mikvah. He would go to the uh, ritual immersion tank to make sure he was ritually pure so that he could be handling a Torah scroll. Maybe that gives us something of a sense of um, wanting to be ritually clean, ceremonially clean. Who can come into the presence? But, But notice what he goes on to say here. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He's not talking about ritual purification. He's talking what they would understand. The ritual purification is a picture of moral purification. Of being morally fit to go into God's presence. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Um. We kind of got used to this COVID time of everybody understanding about clean hands. You know, everybody's, you know, washing their hands and we'll probably be dealing with chapped hands for the next three or four years. But he's not talking about clean hands. He's talking about clean hands. Or in other words, what he's saying is the hands represent our actions, our deeds. You know, you read in the scripture sometimes someone who has uh, hands with um, uh, innocent blood. In other words, your deeds have been wrong. The hands represent our actions. The heart represents our attitudes or our affections, our will. And so when he says clean hands and a pure heart in, our, in what we do and in, in, in where our heart is, what, what, what we think about and where our desires and affections are, that needs to be cleansed as well. Honestly, it's a lot cleaner a lot easier to go to the, the immersion tank, get dunked, and walk up into the temple than to have a cleansing of heart and hands. He goes further and says, he has not lifted up his soul to an idol. So if you've been, you know, idol worship would be an abomination. You can't worship the idol and then go into God's presence. Nor sworn deceitfully. Our, so our, our deeds, our, our, our desires, our words, our worship, have we been, you know, you can't go and bow before the altar of Baal and then come and, and bow before the Lord. And so here he's talking about the idea of personal godliness, practical sanctification. Kind of reminds me of Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Proverbs 15.8. That was Psalm 66.18 now. Proverbs 15.8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. In other words, if we're involved, if sin characterizes us, we're not, our prayer is not pleasing to the Lord. Isaiah 1.15. God rebukes his people. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear your hands are full of blood. Now, he's not saying there was blood. Uh, you know, they could wash their hands, but he's saying, you have been violent and unjust in your deeds. Uh, immediately coming to mind, I think of th- that could be said of Mr. Putin these days. Violent and unjust. Your hands are full of blood. And so, so that's the kind of a picture of, 
uh, uh, he's describing what, is it, what does it take to be in God's presence. But notice verse 5. He shall receive, this one who's worthy, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That verse encourages me. Because if we're honest, are our deeds always pure? Are, are our thoughts always clean? Who's worthy to go before God and worship him? Who can rightly enter into his presence? Verse 5. He shall receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation. Where does righteousness come from? The God of his salvation. Who could be clean enough? Who could be pure enough? God takes care of that. That word, he shall receive blessing, is kind of an unusual word. It has the idea of, of a picking up. Notice, we shall pick up and put on upon ourselves God's righteousness. The righteousness from God of his salvation. The God of our salvation is the one who gives us the righteousness so we can stand in his presence. You know, David talked about that a lot. You know, uh, that it, how can we stand before God except for his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy? Who's worthy to approach God? The one who has taken upon himself the righteousness of God. That's salvation by grace through faith. And the only way we can come into God's presence, the only way we can worthily worship him is through Christ. So Jesus could say, no one comes to the Father but through me, because anyone else does not have the clean hands and the pure heart worthy of him. In verse 6, then, he finished, so he's talking here about the worthy worshiper. So I think he's talking about the importance of our life. We need to, you know, if, we, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear my prayer. We do need to, as we approach the Lord, uh, uh, set aside our sin, repent. But ultimately, we have to recognize, I cannot be sinless. And I need his mercy, and I need his forgiveness. I need his righteousness upon me. Verse 6 then, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. This is the true Israel. This is the true Jacob. Do you remember how uh, Paul talks about in Romans eleven twenty six? All Israel will be saved. There he's talking about the elect and believing Israelites. And here he's saying, this is the true Israel. Those who know the Lord in this way, who've, who've taken his righteousness upon them. Sometimes people get the idea that um, in the Old Testament, salvation was by works. And, and since Christ now, it's salvation is by grace. There is no salvation by works. There's no one who can earn God's approval and salvation. And in the Old Testament as well as New, and, and, and if you have a question with that, read Romans 4. When, after Paul in First Romans, first three chapters, 1, 2, 3, has laid out all are guilty. It's only by the blood of Christ that we can stand forgiven. He then goes on to chapter 4 in Romans and says, Am I telling you something? Is this something new? Is this a new religion? He says, No. This is the Old Testament faith. And he cites Abraham. Abraham believed God and was counted him to righteousness. That was before the law. After the law, David, who in the Psalms says, How blessed is the man to whom God does not impute iniquity. 
And so David here is extolling God's grace. He, he, he says, God is a God of glory. Who can approach him? Only one who's clothed in the righteousness God gives. So having seen God in his glory, having challenged us about our worthiness to be in his presence, now in verses 7 to 10, he speaks of welcoming the king of glory. He says in verse 7 to 10, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Who can approach God's holy hill in our own righteousness? No one. Except the king of glory. The Lord of glory. He can rightfully demand entrance. Um, as I've just read these verses, James uh, Montgomery Boyce, uh, he, he expresses well what's happening here. I, I'll follow him. And so it begins this way. There's this chorus uh, of those approaching with the king um, cry out as, they, as, as the king of glory is approaching Jerusalem. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So you can imagine as the king's approaching, those with him cry out, Open the doors for the king. A voice from within the walls, he says, Who is this king of glory? The spokesman for the king says, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Then the chorus again says, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The voice from within repeating the former question, Who is he, this king of glory? And all cry together, The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Now what's going on here? Again, some take this as, this is a psalm depicting the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem. Another thing that I've read suggested is the Ark of the Covenant coming back victorious from battle. But I can't recall an incident where the, you know, of course the Ark went around Jericho. Remember when Israel thought it would be a good idea to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines? Didn't work well, did it? And I remember that was so horrific. Eli fell back and broke his neck and his... His, his daughter-in-law was so upset. I mean, she just found out her husband died, but she, she, her, her concern was Ichabod. The glory of God is, has, has gone. The, the, the thought of the Philistines capturing the Ark of the Covenant. But all that to say, I can't recall where the Ark of the Covenant went out into battle and then came back with a, to a victory parade. So I don't think that's, the, that, that's not the issue here. And I don't think it's him bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Rather, he's talking about the Lord himself coming to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to try not to dig too deep here. Some of your translations will have um, the expression, let me think, how does it read here? Lift up your gates, be lifted up, you everlasting doors. That idea, everlasting or doors, or maybe eternal doors, is seen in the New King James, the King James, the NET Bible, and the uh, Jewish Publication Bible. 
Once again, I don't see you writing down. What, what is wrong? Why don't you write these down? You need to know this. <laughs> but um, on the other hand, some say, retranslate there, the ancient doors. And you'll see that if you're looking at the New American Standard, ESV, CSB, and some others. Now this word in the Hebrew, the word olam, um, can mean ancient. Of 439 occurrences in the Bible, about 22 times it, it rightly translates ancient. But everything else, it's all eternal, everlasting. Now, if you're saying ancient doors, that just means that this, the, the gates of Jerusalem are ancient gates. Okay? But if you say they're everlasting doors, if you're, if you're talking about eternal or everlasting doors... Well, the cities of Jerusalem has been totally destroyed at least twice uh, under the Babylonians and under the Romans. Those, those were not everlasting doors. He, I, he's talking here about Jerusalem and the kingdom. He's talking here about when Christ comes in glory. Um. Mr. Spurgeon quotes Christmas Evans, who was a, um, he was called the John Bunyan of Wales. So he was a greatly used uh, preacher in, the, in various Wales, Wales awakenings. And I won't get into the details of why, but he was called the one-eyed uh, preacher. Uh, he had been injured in, a, in an incident. Here's what Christmas Evans, and isn't that a great name? Not too many people would name their child Christmas these days. But he tells this. He says, when the king of England wishes to enter the city of London through the temple bar, that's one of the gates, the gate being closed against him, the herald demands entrance. Open the gate. From within, a voice is heard, who is there? The herald answers, the king of England. And the gate is opened at once and the king passes amidst the joyful acclamations of the people. Of course, they're not surprised that the king is there. It's all planned. But they still go through the ceremony. You open the gate because the king is at the gate. That's the picture of Psalm 24. And so this psalm will be sung. Now, interesting, Psalm 24 um, has, a, has a certain role in the uh, worship of, his, of the Jews. In the temple day of Jesus' day, they had a different psalm they sang each day of the week. On the first day of the week, on Sunday, they sang Psalm 24. So when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem on the colt of the donkey in the temple, they were singing out, um, open the gates for the king of glory is coming. But they didn't. They didn't welcome at all, him at all, did they? But this psalm, I think the, most, the best way to understand this psalm is, this is the joyful and ultimate expectation. One day the king of glory will come to Jerusalem. And the cry will go out to the millennial capital, open the gates, the eternal gates, the everlasting gates. And if you will, that's described in Matthew 25, 31. 
when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Psalm 24 is the psalm that welcomes Messiah to rule in Jerusalem. So think of those final words that we've been saying in this final section. Will it be the angels? Will it be the redeemed coming into the kingdom? Crying out, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Notice, who is this king of glory? Is it David? He's not the Lord of hosts. Is the Ark of the Covenant the Lord of hosts? Jesus Christ is the Lord of hosts. And so as he approaches Jerusalem to establish his reign, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. The king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He'll have just, he'll have just put down the battle of Armageddon. He'll have just conquered all of the rebellion that had, that had brought to, to the, a peak, the rebellion of, of history there in the final seven years. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. The king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The Lord of hosts, the king of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be gloriously celebrated and welcomed as he enters Jerusalem to rule in righteousness, justice, and peace. Psalm 24 expects that. Psalm 22, the crucifixion of the Savior. The cross. Psalm 23, the present ministry of the, of the shepherd. Psalm 24, when the king comes to rule. Savior, shepherd, sovereign. But what a glorious picture of, of, of the earth finally, fully, gloriously welcome Jesus Christ to his rightful place as ruler. Celebrating the wicked have been put down. Celebrating the stench of sin and rebellion finally being cleansed from the world. Celebrating the Lord God in his rightful place ruling over a believing and honoring world. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Father, we, we long for the day as our, our Savior taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Oh, Father, the more we see this world twisting and turning out of, out of order, we long for the day when the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, will rule and reign in righteousness. Father, until that time, may we rest in, in the forgiveness purchased by the Savior on the cross. Father, may we follow the, the Lamb Shepherd 
uh, each day of our life, trusting him. But we long for his return. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord of hosts, the king of glory. I pray this in Jesus' name.